Hello and welcome to the Crystal Podcast on iCode Media. Today I had a great conversation with Dr. Ryan Wally about Mississippi's new scope practice law and what it took to achieve that law. So I had a lot of fun with this conversation. As always, be sure to subscribe to the podcast, write a review, and share it with your friends and support those who support us. We've been providing myopia control treatments in our practice for years. If you've been listening to the podcast for a while, CooperVision has received FDA approval of its innovative MySight one-day contact lens. This will be the cornerstone of a comprehensive myopia management approach to be offered by CooperVision. This daily wear, single-use contact lens is the first and only FDA-approved product clinically proven to slow the progression of myopia when initially prescribed for children 8 to 12 years old and when compared to children in the control group wearing a single-vision one-day contact lens. Check out the show notes for all the specific prescribing details and to get more information about this lens and how you can begin to offer it in your practice. Well, you're right into it then. So the, do you not generally see patients on Friday afternoon? So normally we, we do. So we took Friday afternoons off for uh, the month of May just to let the staff catch up. We've been so busy at the office getting caught back up from COVID that they were begging us, hey, you know, is there a day y'all can take off? And, give us some time to get caught up. So we figured what afternoon better than Friday, give ourselves a little bit longer weekend. Yeah. Yeah. So then let's, uh, I mean, I guess one of the reasons that I wanted to have you on or the main reason I wanted to have you on was to kind of get your perspective on what it took in Mississippi to pass the law that you passed. And so, you know, you and I go back quite a ways because I think must have been three or four years ago when I came to do a, an educational event at, um, just at the, it was in the cat, it was for just your political action, kind of your legislative day. So we did a combined CE with some some training associated with um, with lobbying and grassroots, etc. How long ago was that? Gosh, that had to have been at least four or five years ago, if not that more. long. Um, I'm trying to look back. I took over as legislative chair in 2015 or 16, and it was right after that. I mean, it might have been maybe 2017. Maybe. Man. Yeah. Well, anyway, so so I, I what I think is important, uh, kind of the message that's important is that, you know, a lot of times we think that we're going to be able to kind of launch a scope of practice bill and pass it the exact same year. And yeah. So what were your thoughts about that initially? And, uh, and then what was the reality? So, you know, in a perfect world, what you would do is you'd wake up, you'd say, I want to pass the scope law and six months to a year later, there you are. But the reality of it is, is it's, as we said, many times going through the process, it's a marathon. It's not a sprint. And so you've got to play the long game. We started. Did you believe that? Did you believe that when you guys started or did you just sort of go along because that's what the state government relations committee told you? I mean, I personally believed it because that's... What do you think your members... Did your members believe it? Well, you know, I think it's hard sometimes for the membership because they want to do it now, now, now. And <laughs> and a lot of folks just don't understand the political process. And, you know, even within our own, you know, group of folks who are really into this particular issue, it's hard to look at it like a legislator because a legislator in Mississippi is elected for four years. And so in their mind, they get a bill on the first year, they have up to you know, they usually don't pass controversial things in the last year because it's an election year. So in their mind, there's three years once the bill drops that they have to kind of sort through it. And that's after you've put in all the effort 
and all the preparation and all the studying and you have folks come in from other states who've been successful, that's, that's after all of that. So, I mean, it was amazing for us that I remember the very first legislative call I was on that had to deal with scope was back in 2012 when I was just a member of the committee. I, I didn't have a leadership role. I was new on the committee. I was learning kind of how all of that worked. And we were talking with the folks in Louisiana and they were getting ready to go for their scope bill. And, and Dr. Sandifer came and spoke for a while. And it was one of those things that we looked at and said, you know, we'd like to do this. How long will this take? Well, like I said, that was 2012. And here we are 2021, finally on the other side of it after being successful. So that was probably a longer answer than you wanted, but you know, it, it's, it never goes as fast as you want it to go. But it's like I've told other folks who are asking, as long as you put in the work and you get the end result that you're looking for, that's the key. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm talking to Kobe um, next week and we're going to talk about Wyoming, obviously, but it's the same story. I mean, if there's a story that that is kind of lasting and we see this all over the place with state government relations is that it's a it's a continued process. And you're not usually going to get, not usually going to get something right away. And most people only see, they only think of, oh man, well, who was involved that one year? They forget about all the other work, the ground that was laid and, and actually the failures that you have uh, throughout time. So I think that's really interesting. I think it's, it's helpful for people to have a perspective of. One of the other things that I think, and you all talked about this in the roundtable discussions last night, but is this idea that, you know, a lot of us, have good working relationships with ophthalmologists, local ophthalmologists who who take care of our patients when they become surgical outside of our knowledge, education, and training. But if we haven't been through a process like this before, sometimes it can be, we, we can think that, oh, well, I've got great working relationships with ophthalmologists. They're not going to care about this. And yet nobody believes us when we tell them that, you know, you're going to hear a lot of bad things about yourself and about your profession. Did that happen for you guys? Oh, absolutely. And, and the interesting thing for us was that we do, and we, we still feel like we've got great relationships all across the state. We've been really fortunate and, and we've maintained those even throughout this battle. The problem that we had is you've got outside forces coming in and, and, and even internally within the state, there are certain academic institutions or certain areas that they're told one thing when the reality is very different. And what I mean by that, we had a sit down with a, a house chairman and we were sitting there talking about what our bill was going to do, what we were looking for, what we weren't looking for. I was very specific in the meeting and said, look, you know, we're not going after cataract surgery. That is not something that we're interested in. That's not within our wheelhouse, but here are the things we are going for. We wanted to be very clear with leadership and with the other side, what was truth versus what was, you know, what was fact versus what was fiction. And that afternoon, the opposition lobbyist went around telling everybody they're going for cataract surgery. They're going for cataract surgery. So hmm. in a roundabout way, I mean, it, it doesn't really matter what you say sometimes because they're going to go with what they feel is going to, you know, fuel the flame, what's going to scare people. They went with all the theatrics. They went with all of the, you know, they're going to blind people. They, the, the word laser to them was a Star Wars laser. They thought the Death Star was coming in, was going to blow up people. And 
the reality was is, is you've got to be able to, to counter that. And really the time to counter that information is before you get into the session. Because if a legislator hears a Death Star laser and they've not been told anything else, it's going to be really hard to change their mind. Versus what we try to do is go in and educate them on the front end. And even though I think we did a good job, I think we could have done better, honestly, um, with the laser aspect of it. But but you never know. But one thing I would say about the opposition is their playbook never changes. And that was something that all the SGRC meetings I've ever been to, you guys have always been really clear and really good about kind of telling us this is what they're going to say about you. This is how they do it. And, you know, you think, well, you know, my state's going to be different. They're going to come play some different angle or they're going to do this or that. Their playbook never changes. I think they get better over time at implementing the playbook, but it's all the same stuff. It's the same story and the same hysteria every single time. What I've seen happen in a lot of places is that they are getting, I think you're right. The, the playbook's not changing, but if I were going to throw out another tactic I'm seeing is what they're, what they will do is they will use other specialists to battle for them. So ophthalmology won't be the ones testifying. They'll use you know, a dermatologist to talk about the dangers of lump and bump removal, right? Like chalazin removal, papilloma removal, sebaceous cyst removal, those sorts of things. They'll, they'll bring in a Mohs surgeon who is going to talk about how, how all these, you know, precancerous lesions exist on the lid as if we don't already have the knowledge, education, and training to distinguish or know, you know, know the things to look for, uh, in those cases. And, um, and then they'll bring in, you know, when it, when it relates to medications, they'll bring in internal medicine physicians to talk about how dangerous steroids are, for example, or they'll go to the really far end of, we saw this in Nebraska when we had our last uh, scope bill in 2014 that we wound up passing, but they, they tried to use all these like, um, well, they're going to be prescribing methotrexate and all these medications with black box warnings. And this is why we need to have a formulary. And, you know, so they're having, or or if they need an ophthalmologist to come in, what they're doing is they'll bring in somebody from a teaching institution who has no need for relationships with optometry because most of the time patients, by the time they get to them, they're ultra, ultra, you know, um, specialized and they might be seeing patients a half day a week doing research the rest of the time, but they're, you know, they're, um, they, they're not dependent on optometry referrals. And so, um, so they'll bring them in. So they're, they're getting, or they'll bring in somebody from an out, out of the state if that, if that works. So I think they're getting a little smarter in that realm, but the message is always the same. It's the same message. They did that with us. I mean, we had the, the opposition we had that came and testified was from one of the academic teaching institutions in, in the state. And so she came up and, and it's like you said, there's no real draw there in terms of, of making optometry mad because they're, they're a subspecialty and, so she came in with the same message. We had a representative from the medical association came in with the exact same message, surgery by surgeons, you know, the whole, whole story there. But I think the thing that, that we remembered, and I think it would be important for people going forward to remember is when you've got truth on your side, which I really truly feel like we do as a profession, then they can say whatever they want. And as long as you've done your homework and you've done the work ahead of time, you're going to be prepared for, for what they have to throw. Of course, they may come out and surprise you. They did. Uh, one of the things we were surprised with is with our pharmaceutical side of our bill. At one point, they were arguing that we were going to be treating diabetes. 
Mm-hmm. I'm not sure where that came from uh, or what their what their thought was. I think the flu came into play at one point. They were afraid we were going to be, you know, giving flu medications. I assume Tamiflu. They never really got into detail, but it's the same playbook. It's you know, put a little fire here, put a little fire there, water yes. it there, water it down there. Yes, create questions and concerns, and then that snowballs. And so they'll they'll pick and choose the areas they feel that they're going to be the most vulnerable, and then they'll go for it. Yeah. Or if something, I've seen this too, or if something gets, you know, you get some steam going one way and you, and you can feel that, oh yeah, this is where we're going. It's sort of steamrolls. Then they just try to drop a bomb that's completely unrelated or completely out of left field, which is not practical in any circumstance. It completely ignores the fact that we have ethics. We have, you know, oaths that we take. We, we, you know, are, are placing patients first and foremost in any of these, they'll just drop a bomb over here. Like you said, well, they're going to treat diabetes. Like, come on. I mean, it, it, it's just, it, it, they, they do that kind of stuff because it, it slows down what they're trying, what, what the real content of the real messaging and the real, the reality of, of what you're doing actually is. Absolutely. And one area that I'm sure you Mississippi is not unique in this way, but Many times I got the feeling we weren't just battling ophthalmology or even just battling medicine. It was a personal vendetta with their lobbyists. Uh, we had a situation where ophthalmology's lobbyists and our lobbyists didn't always see eye to eye. And so many times the, 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 the lobbyists took it personally, I guess, on their side. And, and so many of the times that lies were spread or mistruths were spread, it was from the lobbying side, not necessarily. Um, ophthalmology. Don't let them off the hook that easily. Yeah. It's like, it's like a, uh, it's like, you know, um, saying that uh, the divorce, it's the divorce attorney's fault <laughs> for, for perpetuating the misinformation and the falsehoods, right. And the fake news it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, it's easy, but yeah, you're right. I mean, it, um, you know, but, but wouldn't you want a lobbyist like that? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because we feel like we had the other side of that. We were able to counter. And, you know, our executive director, we talk all the time. And one of the things that we've been so proud of is that our lobbying firm went toe to toe with them. I mean, we, it, any state that wants to go for scope, if you can't afford the best lobbyist there is and the best in your state, it's probably not a good idea to go for it because you need mm-hmm. you need that inside um, input. You need that inside knowledge. You need someone who's going to be passionate about your cause. And we were really fortunate with ours. We've, we have our lobbyists that we keep, even when we're not going for legislative issues, we keep them every, every year and uh, they've been remarkable for us. So they were a big part of our process. Yeah. I think it's important too, is, you know, having consistent lobbyists and also having an honest relationship with the lobbyists that you have in the sense of, you know, if they're not doing the stuff that you, you need them to do, if they're not, if they're not the guys that are getting offended when they're, you know, like, like the opposition's was in, in a good way, right? And clearly in a good way, then if it, you know, then you're, you probably need to think about a different lobbyist. And, um, and I think that's the other, you know, the other challenge I think that some states will have is they might put too much emphasis on their lobbyist, right? Your lobbyist has to do those things. But where we see states that have challenges is they put too much behind 
Did you put too much stock in their lobbyists' relationships? Did that have happened to you guys early on in previous years or in other scenarios? Really not. You know, I think we can attribute a lot of that, that we were able to avoid that because of our executive director. You know, Linda is phenomenal at keeping us on point, letting us know what we need to do. And so from the very beginning, I mean, we were the ones delivering pack checks. We were the ones doing the work. The, the idea for our lobbyists was they're the ones working behind the scenes. They supplement what we do. We don't supplement what they do. And so that's kind of what um, we we wanted to to try to accomplish was just to to let us put in the effort as much as we can and then lean on them where it was necessary for that insider track or that insider information. So then in an effort to make sure that patients have the best standard of care, um, well, actually, before I get to that question, what I want to what I'd want to know is sort of the the peak behind the scenes in because you did wind up sitting down with ophthalmology, um, you did have, you did basically have a a sort of an agreement that you you compromised a little bit on what you were asking for originally. They compromised to the degree that they had to, but I want to I, I want to focus on this idea that. There was no compromise for them until they saw the writing on the wall. Is that correct? Explain that. So I think it was a number of factors. Number one, grassroots. Grassroots was huge for us. We had a really strong grassroots committee. We had a really strong grassroots chair. And we put in that work ahead of time. So when we came out of the house on the first vote, it was a vote of like 90 to 24. So you know, you put it into a sports analogy you're playing basketball and you win a game 90 to 24. That's pretty convincing. Um, so coming out of the house, overcoming the obstacle that we had there with one of our, our chairmen there, I think that was the first step. And then the other thing was we kind of got a perfect storm where we had a, an ophthalmologist that was a, a strong proponent of optometry who was, who took referrals from optometry, but really, had a great relationship with a lot of, uh, of our statewide optometrists and he got involved and kind of shook up the system a little bit and said, look, y'all, this is what they're asking for. These are you know reasonable people. They're not going for cataract surgery. And he got involved. He's the kind of person he didn't care what they did to him. You know, he knew what was right. And so we were very fortunate there. But at the end of the day, I think they, they realized that we had a very powerful force of momentum behind us. And they had put too much stock in the fact that we would never get it out of the house. And once we got it out of the house and we continued to build that momentum afterward, they realized they're about to get much, much more, or they were afraid we were about to get much, much more than they were ever going to be comfortable with now or ever. And so if they didn't come to the table and try to do some damage control, it could very easily get out of hand. So, um, like when said, you say out of hand, you mean out of hand for them, but clearly it would be better. <laughs> better for the patients, but you're saying, yeah, out of hand for them. They, they lose, in this case, they, they basically have some, some control left. Sure. Sure. So and then, they, um, no, go ahead. Oh, no, I was just gonna say, you know, what, everything that we asked for was well within our scope and, of course. and they yeah. knew in the back of their mind, whether they wanted to admit it or not. The reality was we weren't going to ask for anything that we weren't going to be comfortable with because at the end of the day, we're judged and held to the same standard that they are. And so we knew that what we were asking for was reasonable. And I think that, like I said, when it got out of hand, that's from their standpoint. They were afraid, you know, we were, we were going to be able to get more than, than they were willing for us to have. 
And I think that we still did, but it just kind of encouraged them to come to the table and actually talk about what we were looking for. And, and it opened up a dialogue. You know, the, um, the thing I always think about is that, you know, I have, I have a lot of training with, with minor procedures from when I was, you know, from 13 years ago and, or longer. Uh, you, you know, when you look at like ophthalmology minimums required for, for their ACGME in order to get their, um, in order to get their, basically to finish their residency, they have certain minimums of procedures. And it's, it's actually astounding when you look at those minimum procedures in order for them to be considered proficient. And of course, they'll say, well, that's a to- there's a totality of procedures that we have to think about. And so all of these procedures play into it. Well, if that is true. There's no question that's true. And we can use those same arguments on our side. Like, you know, the, the technical aspects of corneal foreign body removal and lacrimal uh, dilation and gunnioscopy and, you know, slit lamp, those, those technical skills apply to other procedures that we may do over time. Mm-hmm. Um, but they can't have it both ways. I guess my point is, is that when I look at how many of those procedures I've done, um, it, it, it completely makes their minimums pale. I mean, it's like their minimums wouldn't even exist because I, I had the opportunity to do so many more, right? Like exponentially more than what their minimums were. I make that point to say that even now, if we were, if in Nebraska, if we were to expand that, expand our scope of practice, I would go back and I would, I would do so many things to make sure that I'm not even just proficient, but I'm, I'm the best you know, clinician that those patients can have. So what's your mindset on that right now? What are you going to do to make sure that your patients are, are protected, right? And you're first doing no harm. And then obviously benefiting the patient populations that, that now have access to your services. Sure. So, I, you know, we touched on that a little bit earlier. We're going to start our, our certification course tomorrow. And this particular course is tailor-made to our law. Um, so we're going to be discussing all of the different procedures that are going to be allowed, the, the YAG laser capsulotomy. We're going to focus on all those different procedures over the course of the next week. And our state board in the law is challenged with certifying optometrists to perform these procedures. And one of the things we have to do once we finish this course, then we go to the state board, we take a written exam administered by the board. Then we will have a clinical skills assessment that's going to be administered by the board. You've got to pass both of those. And then we even took it a step further. Every optometrist that's going to be certified in these procedures has to have an eight-hour preceptorship that's either going to be with an ophthalmologist or a licensed optometrist credentialed to perform these procedures. So we have to go through all of that before we can even take advantage of any of the items in this law. And, and we're real proud of that. I worked really closely with our state board president, and he's told me many times, he said he really feels that with the way this process, once it works itself out, we'll have one of the most stringent credentialing processes to get this done for an optometrist. Because at the end of the day, it's all about protecting the patient, making sure what's best for the patient. It's not about optometry. It's not about me or our, our association. It's about doing what's best for Mississippians. And so we wanted to make sure we did everything we could to make sure they were protected. And I think we've, we've done a great job with that. Yeah, I, w- I would say that, you know, the, 
the first thing is that that's way above and beyond what I think uh, the historical data on what is necessary for safe procedures for optometrists are. But I think that's good, right? Like, like I, I look at it and I'd say, even if I was done, like, let's say this is, I think, the attitude that most optometrists have. They're not cavalier, right? I think that's the, the first thing is we're not cavalier. One, there's mul- multiple reasons. We're not trained that way. We're not trained to be, you know, cowboys. And of course, there are probably in any profession, there are cowboys, right? But, but like, we're not trained that way. So by and large, optometrists are going to be, they're going to err on the side of safety and caution. And if they see something that they're not comfortable with, or they're, they don't fully understand, they're going to, they're going to move it on. It's just our um, But the other thing is that, like, there's nothing that precludes you from wanting more training than that, right? You might go through that process. And you might say, gosh, for me, I want to, I want to know more, or I want to, I want to do more of these under a preceptorship. And so um, it'd just be interesting to, 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 I don't think, I think, I don't think you'll feel that way, but, um, but I, I get the sense of like, you know, some of us are pretty conservative in those, in those areas and we might want more, right? And there's nothing that says you can't do more, I guess is the point. And we had several of our doctors that had already taken those, the advanced procedures course. I think they had one offered in Arkansas. Yeah, they're going to do it over again. And now they have to do it over again yeah. because the way yeah, our law and we did it on purpose. And they're probably fine and happy to do that. Absolutely. And and it was one of those things that it's just, it's building on knowledge that we already have. And that was one of the key elements of when I watched Arkansas go through their process and I watched their their testimony. One thing that really hit me was, you know, they talk about the 32 hour course, like that's some negative issue. Right. And, you know, it, the, I think it was uh, Dr. Starkey who said, you know, this is not continuing education in a vacuum. This is building on the knowledge that we've had year over year, starting from optometry school and moving forward. And, and I think it's important to remember that because this is not like you're going with no knowledge and 32 hours later, you come out the other side and now you're doing things you shouldn't be doing. So absolutely. We want to do everything we can to protect the public. Yeah. I mean, think about it. Think about how crazy it is. You've had our profession in, in, in Mississippi, you could tell me how long this has been the case, but our profession has had the authority has been actually providing all the pre and post-op management for the patients who have, who need this procedure for say 30 or more years. Yeah. And all, all those eight hours really doing (laughs) is teaching you how to focus a Heaney beam and, and push a button, right? That's the only additional, right? You're going to cover all that stuff again. Of course, but the only additional thing that that eight hours or that the whole course that you're taking is to basically press a button, right? That that are things that you're not already doing in your practice, things that you're not already responsible for and caring for the patient. Um, So I think it's just really interesting to think about it that way. Um, And of course, legislators have no idea that that's the case, right? In their mind, this is completely new territory, preoperative, postoperative. You know, how do you decide that this is the right thing for the patient? We do all that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it, it was hard sometimes to to really get the legislator to understand that, that, look, we're already doing 85 percent of this anyway. All we're asking you to let us do is the 15 percent that our law doesn't allow us to do. And and again, that all goes back to grassroots. It all goes back to the education before the bill is even dropped, because really, at the end of the day, if we're having to make those arguments during the session 
or make those arguments on a repeated basis. Of course, you're going to have legislators here and there who haven't been keeping up or who don't don't care, or maybe they do care, but they've been preoccupied with other things. So it all goes back to that, just hammering that education. This is what we do. We're already doing this much of it. Now we just want to do the rest of it that we're trained to do. Ryan, it's been a great conversation. I really appreciate your time today. I do want to be respectful of your time. I think uh, before before you say anything else, I think for the listeners here, um, Ryan's an up-and-comer in our profession. Uh, he's done already some pretty awesome things in his state of Mississippi, but you'll probably hear his name multiple times. So, Ryan, thanks for coming on. Really appreciate it. Look forward to catching up with you in person. Absolutely. Looking forward to it. Thanks again for having me on.